0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews 13, counting today's message, we have four weeks left in Hebrews. And all God's people said, yeah, y'all just being nice, I know. What we're going to see in Hebrews chapter thirteen over the next four weeks is a shift that the author takes. He has spent ten chapters dealing heavily in doctrine, dealing heavily in the teachings of the kingdom, the teachings of Christ, the teachings of God the Father and God the Spirit. He spent the last chapters that we looked at, eleven and twelve, moving us from those deep, deep discussions of dark looking at examples of faith and encouraging us in our faith and, and what it means to run the race the way we are called to run. And now in, fi- in chapter 13, what we're going to see is a, is a series of messages on how we now take all of that and live it out. This is a very common theme throughout all the New Testament writings, really. Um, Ephesians, for example. Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 deal heavily in doctrinal issues. And then Paul then makes a shift there in 4, 5, and 6 and calls us then how we live those doctrinal issues, those truths of God out. Um, James, in his letter, the first two chapters, heavy in doctrine. And then chapters 3 and 4 and 5, then what it means to live that out in our lives. And so today we see the first one here in chapter 13 with these first six verses. And I've titled this message, A Life of Contentment. There's only going to be one verse that we're going to see the word content in, but as I I worked and I read and I prayed and as I wrote, I really believe that all the things that are covered here in these first six verses speak to us having a life of contentment. It means to be satisfied, to be satisfied fully. And sometimes I think we look at contentment or being satisfied, and we have a negative view of that. We think that that means we're just kind of settling, that for whatever whatever lot has been given to us in life, whatever situation, whatever it is, that if we're content with it or satisfied with it, we're just kind of settling. And the Bible doesn't present that for us. The Bible presents for us, as we'll see as we begin to close here today, that the contentment or the satisfaction that we are called to is a full contentment and satisfaction in God that's made available to us through Christ so let's read 13 1 through 6 and we'll get into this today he writes let brotherly love continue do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unaware remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? First statement I want to make deals with the first three verses, that we are to live a life where we have contentment or we are content with others. I think he gives us three focal points here. One is found in that first one, let brotherly love continue. Now, this does not mean we simply love the males in the community, but it is that we love the brothers and the sisters. Brotherly is used here in an adjective-type form, describing the type of love we're to have. And the type of love we're to have for the body of Christ is love as if we were blood-related, but we're not. Now, we can make a big theological statement here and say we are blood-related by the blood of Christ but it is to treat one another as you would treat a blood relative it is to have love for them in that setting in that sense and so there's an implication here with this command in 13:1 that perhaps in this community that brotherly love had begun to weaken had begun to wane And, of course, we would understand that in times of persecution, in times of distress, in times where we may be tempted to sort of look out for number one, brotherly love is one of the first things that kind of tends to go by the wayside. That we do not love each other as we're called to. And so we've seen throughout Hebrews these various passages, these various warnings that he's given this community and given us, that there is responsibility for us to one another. There's responsibility for us to love. There's responsibility for us to urge. There's responsibility for us to encourage. And we have that responsibility for one another. And this Christian love, this brotherly love, is to be a particular and peculiar kind of love. Love that is from me to you, from you to me, and across the aisle and up in the balcony and everywhere else, out in between to other brothers and sisters, is a particular kind of love. Yes, The scriptures speak of loving our enemies and loving our neighbors and loving all those around us. But this love that we're supposed to have for one another is a particular kind of love. I just want to give you a few examples. Galatians 5.13 says that in love we serve one another. Ephesians 4.15 says that in love we speak truth to one another. Colossians 3:14, he says that love promotes harmony and unity among the body of Christ. John, in his gospel in chapter 13, verse 35, records that Jesus, by this they will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Not if you're theologically proficient, not if you outgive one another monetarily, not if you Go to a Middle Eastern country and spread the gospel. All those things are good. But he says how they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And later in 1 John, as the gospel writer John writes these additional letters to the church, he picks up on what Jesus said and expands on it. Two sections primarily in 1 John, one in chapter 3, verses 11 through 24, the other in chapter 4, verses 7 through 21, and I want to read to you from chapter 4, verse 20 and 21, as he closes out that section. Speaking of this peculiar, particular kind of Christian love, he says, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So when he says, let the brotherly love continue, he's calling for here in this Jewish community of Christians and then every Christian community of faith that has been read or that has read and been challenged by this moving forward, that there is a peculiar, particular kind of love that we're to have for one another that is demonstrated to the world. I want to give you a very interesting historical example. Of this kind of love because this kind of love and when we have this for one another we stress the things that connect us more so than the things that divide us. George Whitfield and John Wesley were two 18th century preachers in England. Grew up together in the ministry, worked together in the ministry. Whitfield then for a time left England, came to America, began a ministry in America. And when he returned to England, Whitfield and Wesley, who were once partners in the ministry, had now become enemies in the ministry. Because they had differed on a theological perspective or understanding of salvation. Whitfield had developed a a very sound foundation in his mind of salvation being uh, tuned into the ideas of predestination and election, that man had no choice in the matter. Wesley had uh, taken a different path in his understanding of the Bible and salvation. There was a more open understanding of man's free will. And so rather than agree on the reality of salvation and the the promise of the gift of God and what Jesus has done to accomplish it, they spent some time butting heads with one another over who was right and who was wrong. And I believe under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, they both were brought to confession and repentance of that. They did not acquiesce or yield to the other's theological position, but they met and began to communicate both in person and through letters and began to rebuild their relationship. And I want to read to you an excerpt from Whitfield's, one of Whitfield's letters to Wesley. He writes this, why should we dispute when there is no possibility of convincing? Paul talks about this in one of his letters. He says, have nothing to do with quarrelsome debates. Why should we dispute when there's no possibility of convincing? Will it not in the end destroy brotherly love and take from us that cordial union and sweetness of soul, which I pray God may always subsist between us? How glad would the enemies of our Lord be to see us divided? An example of brotherly love. That they would come to a point where they would understand that what united them was greater than what divided them. And what they realized was that in those moments, in that time period of division, the gospel and the kingdom were suffering because of it. And it was such a a relationship that was restored. At Whitfield's personal request, John Wesley preached his funeral sermon. What an amazing historical example of brotherly love. Second, in verse 2, he talks about a love that's demonstrated by hospitality for strangers. He says in verse 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware many times when people deal with this issue they want to focus on what the meaning of angels is angels is a word or the greek that's translated angels here is a greek word that can also translate into just the word messenger in luke 9 for example jesus is approaching jerusalem and it says he sent messengers ahead of him human beings to make preparations for him And so the question often revolves around this. Well, is the author of Hebrews talking about messengers being human beings? Or is he talking about supernatural beings, actually angels? I believe he's actually talking about supernatural beings. And here's why. First of all, in 96% of the usage of the New Testament, this word is translated angels, meaning a supernatural being, not a human. Secondly, we've already seen in Hebrews in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, as he's talking about Jesus' supremacy over the angels, he calls angels ministering spirits sent to us. One way they are sent to us, I believe, is to test to see whether we really are who we say we are. Thirdly, in Genesis 18, again, thinking that he's writing to Jews, he would have understood that they would have known the great stories of their Jewish faith. And in Genesis 18, Abraham encounters these three individuals as if out of nowhere. And what we learn to understand from these three individuals is that one of them was the Lord himself. It's a theological word called a theophany, meaning a pre-incarnate Christ, where the Spirit of God took on human form. And it was the Lord himself and two angels, as we learn later in the beginning of Genesis 19. And they appeared to Abraham as a test of his faith. So I believe here he's talking about that it is hospitality and that we do sometimes entertain a supernatural being unaware. But lest we get all worked up over whether it's a human or an angel that's supernatural, let's just make the focus here. It's on hospitality. So whether you think it's a human being or an angel you're to be hospitable we demonstrate our love in hospitality and again this is a common theme and thread throughout the scriptures from the levitical laws regarding the stranger and the sojourner in the land of israel to the good samaritan to here in hebrews and everywhere in between and beyond those scriptures god's people are called to be hospitable kind and generous And that is a way that we show contentment with our lives, is to be that way to others. Thirdly, it's a love that shows concern. Look again at verse 3, if you will. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Previously in Hebrews chapter 10, a few weeks ago, we saw a very similar type of a passage uh, regarding those who were imprisoned and been being mistreated poorly. In Hebrews 10, verse 34, you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And so he's already spoken once in this letter about the issue that there were people in prison for their faith. I think sometimes it's difficult for us when we encounter messages or passages in the scripture that talk about people being imprisoned. It's tough for us to really put ourselves there given the way we view our current prison system. Which by and large is just if you do something against the law, you're going to prison. You break one of the civil or the governmental laws, you're going to imprison. But here, the issue is they are imprisoned for their faith. They're imprisoned for being a Christian. I'm, I'm going to post these two websites on our Facebook page this afternoon. But there are two websites, opendoorusa.org and prisoneralert.com. And I encourage you this week to go to those websites and read some of those accounts and stories of people worldwide who are not going to prison because they broke a civil law, but are imprisoned and some even paying for their li- with their lives for the name and the cause of Christ. And what he says here is we demonstrate a love, a particular Christian love for them in remembering them. I think remembering them is a, is a couple of different ways. I think it's obviously remembering them and remembering them in prayer. I think it's also if there are possibilities or ways for us to, to donate to a group or to fund a group that, that serves and ministers to them in the prisons. Uh, we, we, we find those ways, we do that. But we remember with them, we remember with those who are mistreated specifically because what he says is at the end, for you are also in the body. Meaning your Christian church body, the body of Christ you and I are engaged in, is not limited to these few people gathered here in this room. It goes out exponentially worldwide. That to the one who's imprisoned in China, the one who's imprisoned in the Middle East, the one who's imprisoned in Africa, the one who's imprisoned wherever they may be for the cause of Christ, it's as if we were there ourselves. That is the love, the remembrance that he's calling on us to have and to be content with our situation by remembering those who are in a very different situation. The second thing I believe he calls us to is a contentment with personal life. Look at verse 4 again. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. He, he brings up the issue of the marriage relationship. Uh, in, in a book that I have called Backgrounds of Early Christianity, this is one of the things they say about marriage in that day. The prevailing type of marriage in Jewish, Greek, and Roman society was monogamous or one person to one person. Extramarital sexual relations, however, were readily available with prostitution and adultery common. What we know even from Jesus' teachings, and Jesus uh, in Matthew chapter 5, as part of the Sermon on the Mount, he says this in verses 31 and 32 It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus was examining and, and attacking the very Jewish practice and other cultures as well but he was predominantly speaking here to the Jewish practice of a man divorcing his wife when he was away from her so he could have sexual relations with another woman and then reinstituting the marriage when he came back. And what he would do is he would, wherever he was and with that woman that he wanted to be with, he would write, if we wanted to kind of put it in a modern day term, in the bar, at the nightclub, at the hotel, he would take a napkin and go, I divorce my wife and go be with that woman and then go back home and destroy that. And now suddenly he's married and faithful again. So Jesus has already approached this in his writing. The writer of Hebrews, or in his saying, the writer of Hebrews here is revisiting that. And he says the marriage relationship is to be honored by all. Oftentimes, the word all means the persons that are around us. And and here definitely it has that connotation. But the literal Greek sentence reads this way. Honorable is the marriage in all. And that phrase, in all, means that all these other relationships that he's spoken about from this point forward, the brotherly love, the relationships we have to strangers, the relationships we have to those who are in prison and mistreated, uh, above all of those relationships, marriage is to be considered the most honorable. Why? Because marriage on earth is a picture of the bride of Christ. Well, Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 30, 31 and 33, through 33, where he's wrapping up his teaching on marriage. And he says, this is a profound mystery, but I tell you, it is the Christ. It is of Christ and the church. The Christian marriage serves as an example to those, or should serve as an example to those who do not know Christ. As the love Christ has for his church, for his bride, and vice versa. I don't have a perfect marriage. Listen, and I are very upfront about that. We have our struggles. We have our times. We have our moments. But I've learned with Katie and with Kenzie, and I'll learn it with Gabriel and Kiki, that their friends oftentimes don't have anything at home to point them to Jesus and the church. And it is one of the reasons why we readily welcome their friends into our home. So at the very outset, what they can see is a husband and a wife who love and serve and support one another, that that maybe, just maybe by seeing that example that differs from what they have at home, they might be prompted to say, Why are your mom and dad different? Why are your mom and dad loving, caring? Why are they supportive? So that perhaps my kids or perhaps Alyssa or myself may be able to have a conversation with those individuals to say, let me tell you about Jesus and his bride. Marriage is to be held in high regard. Secondly, in terms of a personal life, he talks about money. Boy, don't we love it when the Bible talks about money. 13 verse 5, we're just going to deal with the first part of it. Keep your love free from love of money and be content with what you have be content with what you have uh, I'm, I'm going to read from Paul's writings about money in 1 Timothy 3 verse 3 as he's going over the list of qualifications for overseers or leaders of the church he says overseers are not to be lovers of money in that same letter, in 1 Timothy 6.10, he says that the love of money is the root of all kinds or manners or types of evil. In his second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.2, he says, In the last days, among the many things that will mark and let us know that we're in the last days, people will become lovers of money. Again, even thinking the Jesus words, Luke six fourteen, he calls the Pharisees lovers of money. And you say, well, what does it mean to be a lover of money? What does it mean to, to not have a love for money here be content? The phrase lovers of money uh, or a lover of money is really this phrase, someone who has an insatiable, greedy, obsessive desire for more. More money, more wealth, more material things, more material goods. A person who has an insatiable, obsessive desire with acquiring wealth. And Randy Alcorn wrote a book called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. And he stated that in Jesus' teachings alone, 15% of Jesus' teachings either included examples or were about the issue of money, wealth, and possessions. of Jesus' words. Now, he may have been using money or wealth or possessions to teach bigger kingdom principles, but it should not escape us that he was using those examples to talk about the kingdom of God. And so we're to be free of a love for money. And we combat this love of money. We combat this obsessive, greedy uh, desire for more material wealth and gain with content. In Ecclesiastes 5, 10, and 11, I'm going to read it out of the New Living Translation because I I love just how simple it is. Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? Now tradition holds that King Solomon wrote those words. And tradition tells us that King Solomon, if put into today's value, had a wealth that was in the billions, if not the trillions. And yet he understood that there was no real gain from a love of wealth. John D. Rockefeller, longly considered one of the most wealthy men in American history, said this, it is wrong to assume men of immense wealth are always happy. Why? Why? Because in our greedy, obsessive, compulsive desire for more, we're never satisfied. There was one statement that I read this week, and I forget the the millionaire who was asked this question. But a reporter asked him, when do you know you have enough? And he says, when I make the next million. How do we free ourselves from this? We free it with contentment. We free it with contentment of what we have. And that takes us to this last and most important point today, that we have a contentment with God. The second part of Hebrews 13, 5 and verse 6. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me as we've seen before in Hebrews he quotes from two Old Testament passages I will never leave you nor forsake you and the Lord is my helper I will not fear what can man do to me and so the point of this is being that the crucial center of contentment for us in all of our areas of life is that we are fully content or satisfied in God alone a life of contentment means that we are first and foremost satisfied in God alone and when we have that and when we keep that in front of us and when we make that our goal then we will learn to be content in every other area and we have to be careful because sometimes I think we get content or satisfied in the things that point us to God more so than God himself we get content or satisfied in the things of Bible study and prayer time and tithing and serving and the worship service and on and on and on. You say, Are you saying those things are bad? I'm absolutely not saying those things are bad. Those things are good and vital spiritual disciplines to move us towards God. But they have the intent and the intention to do that, that we would be more satisfied in him than in those things. When those things are, for, are our place of satisfaction, what happens is when those things don't meet our standard, they don't meet our preference, they don't look like they used to, they don't think what we think they should look like, or somebody uses something different than what we want them to, or whatever the case may be, our satisfaction and contentment is in those things as opposed to the one those things are pointing us to. Now I'm just going to give you a very personal, transparent example. Some of you know, most of you maybe know, me and my family came here by way of Kentucky to Phoenix to Honduras to here. And when we came back from Honduras, that was not intended on our part. We actually thought at this point in stage in life, we'd still be there ministering. And I went to a really dark place for a few months when that happened. Didn't know if I ever wanted to preach again. Didn't know if I ever wanted to be in any kind of ministry again. I was ready to be content to go punch into a factory and work 40 hours a week and die with a retirement package. And I called a friend, a brother, down in Bowling Green. I knew had had a similar experience, that he had moved his family one place and, and it all kind of fell apart and he had to move back home. And I was talking with him, I said, Eric, I said, I just don't know how to get past this. And he said, can I be real honest with you? And I said, yeah, that's why I called you. You're my friend. I expect you to have that brotherly love with me. And he said, your worth was wrapped up in being a pastor and a missionary. He said, you weren't satisfied with God. You were finding your contentment and your satisfaction in the things that you were doing. And when they got ripped out from under you, you fell. Boy, those were harsh words, but they were needed because my contentment and my satisfaction was not in him. I had come back to the state of Kentucky, to my hometown, with my tail between my legs going, Oh, what's everybody going to think? He failed. All those people that raised money to get us there. That, that wonderful couple in Arizona that wrote us a $6,000 check for our first vehicle in Honduras. Oh, what is everybody going to think? Oh, the hometown's going to think, yeah, he left the hometown, but he couldn't cut it, could he? And it was all because my contentment, my satisfaction was not in God and God alone. See, we live a life of contentment because he becomes our full satisfaction and when we're fully satisfied in God, we can increase our brotherly love because no longer is our satisfaction or contentment in how I treat you and you treat me, but it's in God alone. That when we inevitably butt heads and, and have mis- misunderstandings, even arguments, that our satisfaction is in God alone. We increase our hospitality because we're not dependent on our material needs and goods. And we're willing to give to anybody who asks. Because our satisfaction is in God alone. We increase our remembrance, our affection, our concern, and yes, even our giving, if possible, for those who are in prison and those who are mistreated for the cause of Christ. Because we understand two things. One, it's as if we're there with them. And two, that one day it may be us. We increase our love and our devotion for our spouse because we're fully satisfied in God. And we're not dependent on them to make us happy. We decrease our drive for more, more money, more things, more earthly goods, more material things, because we know the greatest satisfaction we have is in God and not in anything else that we can't take into eternity with us anyway. And we do all of that because we remember, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Are there practical things that you and I can do to to lead and live a life of contentment? Sure there are. It's a self-examination process. It's examining the things in our lives that we think make us content that won't really. But all of it begins with, are we fully and most satisfied in God through Christ Jesus? When we began this series, I haven't had you all say it the last few weeks because I thought maybe you were tired of it. But when we began this series, I would have you say that we want to know Jesus better, we want to love Jesus more, we want to serve Jesus greater. All of that was pointing to the fact that we do those things so we are more content and satisfied in Him than we are in anything else. That we live a life of contentment, that we live a life of satisfaction. Because the only place we receive that from is Him. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankford at gmail.com.